This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Um, We've got a lot to talk about in the markets, Alex. Um, But first, I think we probably need to focus on UK politics. I thought, I hoped, I even prayed maybe, Hmm. that uh, that the turbulence in the British government was over. It doesn't appear to be. It does not. Uh, maybe it won't have the kind of market implication and financial instability risk that the last couple of weeks have brought. But nonetheless, it does feel like a little bit uh, of chaos there. And this concerns the Home Secretary, right? Yeah. So, Suella Braverman, Braverman um, this is the headline that we have on the Bloomberg. The Home Secretary Braverman fired for national security breach. Uh, the Home Secretary is fired for um, the mishandling of a secret document on her phone. Now, we're starting to get some some comments from Suella Braverman. She says she's resigned as Home Secretary. She said she, quote, made a mistake. She says that she sent an official document from a personal email, um, says that much of the document had already been briefed to MPs, i.e. was out there. Um, she then goes on to talk about the government. So the, 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 the knife comes out of her back uh, <laughs> and she potentially uses it to, to try and stab Liz Truss. She says she has concerns about the direction of the government. Uh, as the, She has concerns about the direction of the government abroad broadly. She has serious concerns uh, on the manifesto commitments, the 2019 manifesto commitments. So we've lost the Chancellor of the Exchequer. We've got a new one of those. We've now lost the Home Secretary. We're expecting Grant Shapps to potentially take over there. What's next? Well, also, I can't quite tell if it's a good or bad thing that then these individuals are replaced with more of the harder right. Am I right? The harder no, no. right. From her, so no, she's quite. From she's quite. She's quite. She is to the right of the party. But Grant I think Shapps, that is fair to say. But Grant Shapps and Jeremy Hunt would be more middle of the road. More middle, more middle ground, more centrist conservatives. Um, so, so is that a good thing in that we're getting a more mixed layer of government? Well, or is it just another nail in Liz Truss's coffin? Well, it, the, so here's the problem. It's going, I, um, Liz Truss, the prime minister, has been courting the ERG end of the uh, of of the government, which is the more right wing end of the government, mm-hmm. the more Brexit uh, end of the government, in order to try and stabilise her position within the party and allow her the space to be able to carry on. The the removal of the Home Secretary and the Home Secretary potentially being replaced by Grant Shapps will make, in some ways, that relationship more difficult. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that it we don't know the details yet, so I think those will be important, but it looks as if this has come as a result of a mistake made by the Home Secretary may re- reduce that tension, but nevertheless it's going to make life a little bit more difficult, I would say, for Liz Truss. T- to lose one of the big three ministers, Chancellor, Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary, within within kind of a few days is serious. To lose two could potentially be fairly terminal. And that's that's the challenge now. How does she manage this process and cling to power? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I thought you were going to go to Jim Haynes. Um, and this is also... You could just ask me questions on this. Just like That's kind of where we are. We were hoping to speak to Joe Mays, but I think Joe's quite tied up. No, right I now. think we're good. We have him. We have him. Joe Mays is good. Yeah, Joe Mays is good. Da- David Goodman's just also run into yeah. the studio as well. So we've got everybody now. We're... They've all turned up at once, like buses. Um, Joe, what is going on? Why has the Home Secretary gone? So... It's a little bit complicated. You read Suella Broman's resignation letter, and she admits that she did make a technical breach of the rules by, she says, sharing an official document from her personal email to a colleague. And she says, that's a technical breach of the rules, and therefore I resign. But what it sounds like is that it's almost as if the government has tried to push her out, and this is the reason, and it gives her cover that it's a resignation, but actually what has happened is she hasn't pushed out. I just want to read out an amazing line from her resignation letter. She says... Um, the business of government relies on people accepting responsibility for their mistakes. Pretending we haven't made mistakes, carrying on as everyone can't see what we've made them, that's not serious politics. I mean, that is a massive attack on Liz Truss in her yeah. resignation letter, in a very guarded way, but you know, she is not happy uh, at this state of affairs. Do you, do you think we're going to see more of this, Joe, from different secretaries at this point? Well, so we have reporting just uh, crossing the terminal in the last few moments that, yes, we have other cabinet ministers on resignation watch. We have Kit Malthouse. We have Kemi Badenoch. So, yes, you know, this is it's feeling really quite febrile right now. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we should be on guard. It's, uh, it's, it's not looking good. To lose, one, to, to lose one kind of of the big three, quite serious, the Chancellor, to lose two of the big three, like, is that survivable for Liz Truss? Uh, it's looking really difficult right now. And I think, notice that Swella Braveman had lots of support from the very right wing of the party, the ERG, during the leadership contest. She was their kind of candidate. So you can imagine they will not be happy at all at this. And Liz Truss needs friends right now, and she's probably made many more enemies in the party by getting rid of Swella Braveman today. So, you know, the, the question in Parliament is when does she go, not like if, and perhaps this accelerates things. Well, if they all ditch out, so say we have a wave of resignations, there's still rules governing whether or not she can be replaced for a year. So what happens? I guess if we saw a wave of cabinet resignations, that's when you'd probably see many more letters of no confidence going against trust. And the view is that Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee who manages the process, he would say he would see the kind of the massive swell of opinion and then they would change the rules to allow for perhaps in this particular instance, another vote, or changing the rules to get rid of the one unity rule. But that's what it would be. It would be a groundswell of opinion. They change the rules, and that's how she goes. What about this this vote on fracking? They've, the whips have tried to position that as a, as a potential confidence vote. Is that about to backfire spectacularly? The sense I get is that Tory MPs are going to stick to the three-line whip because of that amendment that they've, the government's put on the motion, which says that fracking would only occur if local consent exists. And the way Labour have gone about this, I mean, a Tory MP put it to me, they've tried to hijack the order paper, they've tried to hijack the business of government by introducing this fracking bill. We can't allow that, so therefore we're going to vote again. So I think there's enough wiggle room there that I think enough Tory MPs will stay on side. But it's pretty high-risk strategy that Liz Truss has run by making it a three-line whip for sure. Wait, um, can we just backtrack a little bit and zoom out on that? Can you break that down in English again? <laughs> so basically, the convention in UK politics is that 
if a government orders its party to vote a certain way, and they call that a three-line whip, and it's that if you vote against that, you effectively lose the whip of the party. So if you're a Conservative MP, you're no longer a Conservative MP. It's kind of the highest stake vote you can get. And if the government loses a three-line whip debate, it's seen as a vote of no confidence in the government, and then you have a uh, the, the Prime Minister would have to go to the palace and there would have to be a general election, yeah. effectively. Oh that's kind of, it's mess. the ultimate. It's the ultimate. So that's why it's so important the government wins this, uh, wins this vote later, which uh, we think they will, but, yeah, it's a yeah. very kind of high-stakes moment. As you say, a febrile environment now developing in Westminster. Liz Truss clinging on by her fingertips. If she goes, is there now a plan in place for what happens if she were to go? I, that, that's what appears to my mind to be holding everything back at this point in time, that there's not an obvious next step. No, there isn't an obvious next step. But, I mean, speaking to an MP last night, they were saying perhaps the next step is you change the rules so you can have a new leadership contest and you make it a straight kind of knockout vote where the top person in the vote amongst MPs, they become the prime minister. You don't go back to the membership. Right. And, that, and that's how the transition occurs. And that's, well, that's, how, that's how it could go. That was one MP. So, so are MPs, um, do, do you, you talked a lot of MPs. Do, do, how concerned are MPs about going back to the party base? Oh, very concerned. They do not want that at all. Every MP I speak to says it would be terrible to have to suspend the business of government again for four weeks, eight weeks, to let the grassroots decide a new leader. So that's why they say we, will, we only want to go into that scenario of changing the leader if we can be sure that it won't go to the members and therefore, for example, whoever comes second in an MP's vote agrees to stand down such that whoever came first would just become the prime minister. That's the kind of outcome the MPs want. They don't want the grassroots to get involved again. Honestly, guys, this feels like a big fat mess. At the same time, it is. really. I mean, inflation is. is still over ten percent. The BOE is probably going to have to hike minimum seventy-five. Now, hundred. Uh, did I say Fed? I meant BOE. Uh, uh, maybe hundred basis points back on the table. And apparently, we were going to have a growth plan, but there's no growth plan. How could you possibly have a growth plan when this is such a disaster? Okay, Joe, do we get to the thirty-first with this government? Well, the theory before today was she would limp, limp to that date, but with Suella Braverman going now, that's something I think massively up in the air. If more cabinet okay. ministers go, I think this goes it accelerates a lot quicker. Can I just flag something else now as well, which is I, you guys are reporting this. So the Chancellor is speaking to Bloomberg News in Parliament, and he's saying he hasn't made any decisions about benefits. Uh-oh. <laughs> is that about the triple lock on pensions? Because if he's now saying he hasn't made any decisions and the Prime Minister said it stays a la the 2019 manifesto, do we have a problem there as well? So my understanding is that he's referring there to the decision on uprating benefits in line with inflation, which is not the triple lock issue. Um, But, uh, yeah, that's my sense. Where are we in the triple lock issue, though? So the triple lock issue is one where it seemed like the Prime Minister overruled Hunt today by saying that she's committed to the triple lock, whereas yesterday Jeremy Hunt was saying it's kind of up in the air, everything's on the table. So that looked a bit of a hairy moment today. Like, you know, it, it was Hunt going to resign. Had he been overruled on the triple lock? But um, so many Tory MPs wanted that triple lock to stay that uh, Trust really had no choice. OK, Joe, let's just, let's just sort of wrap this all up. Yeah. What did we learn in the last five seconds? Mm-hmm. Yeah, your assessment of where we are now. Kind of, is it possible to have an assessment of where we are now? I think where we are now is that the amount of peril that Liz Truss is in has 
amped up to to a new level. We're at the we're at the level now where the cabinet is no longer stable. We thought the cabinet was stable you know, about six hours ago, but that's now proven to be not the case. And so we're in a new level of danger for for her. That, that's what I'd say. This is what happens when you mess with tofu. Honestly, <laughs> I, it's a dangerous situation. Uh, Joe, thank you very much indeed. Uh, we greatly appreciate the analysis. You guys are super busy, uh, and we really appreciate you you stepping on to brief us on what is what is, as you say, a, a fairly febrile environment in Westminster right now. Um, Alex, the other story, kind of, as you mentioned, we we've not only got the political story kind of devolving, we've also got the economic situation kind of devolving as well. We had inflation data out a little bit earlier on out of the UK. I think it had a global implication because I think actually the US picked up on on what is happening here Mm -hmm. uh, and we saw yields moving higher. So UK inflation is now back to double digits. We've got got 10% uh, inflation once again. It's fairly broad, the inflation that we are seeing. Interestingly enough, we saw petrol prices, gasoline prices coming down, uh, but we saw things like hotels and restaurants uh, seeing stickier inflation. Um, David Goodman joins us now as ever. As I said yesterday, he just kind of touched shows up sees what's going on kind of makes some comments on on what the picture looks like david where does that leave the bank of england the bank of england has indicated over the last 24 hours that it's going back to its qt program um but this is this kind of this this inflation data just reinforces the point that it is still far far away from getting a grip on the inflation picture in the uk yeah totally and it reminds the uk that whatever jeremy hunt has done and however they've solved some of these fiscal issues that we had there we still have these massive underlying issues that were here in august and are still here now and just because of the various budgetary u-turns that they still exist and yeah i mean going back up to 10.1 percent economists were expecting a little bit of a move not i mean obviously these are all like fractions of percent so like but obviously going back above double digits is a dangerous thing and now you've got the energy policy it was going to keep a little inflation for a while we've just found out that the the, the, the price freeze is going to end in, in in spring that that kind of clears the way for a new price cap in april that could push inflation higher bloomberg economics are saying it could hit 12 percent. i've seen some people say 14 okay. percent we're, we're back on our way up basically because of the and that is a function of this government chaos that joe's been talking about because their budget was ripped to shreds they ended up having to cancel this two-year freeze that's going to have inflation implications so yeah it's all a lot of use none of it good basically i think yeah um you want to jump in there guy you, you were talking like you want to jump in I wasn't no? talking. You were, you, 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 you were doing your thing. You're doing your thing that you want to jump in. Okay, my point uh, that I wanted to bring up too is that um, you had John Cunliffe uh, talking earlier, right? And he was talking about the fact, yes, we're going to start the guilt operations for QT, etc. He said the halting inflation needed for financial instability. Can the BOE halt inflation, that 10%, maybe the 14% inflation, without causing financial instability? Well, I think... Weirdly, the BOE have actually had a pretty decent week at the moment. Like they they announced that QT plan. Yeah, they're like the Marvel comic superheroes right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they somehow managed to announce QT and yet spark an absolutely massive rally in guilty, particularly at the long end, because obviously they they excluded the long end. They made they made the kind of pragmatic choice to say, okay, we're not going to sell you this stuff, but we want to push ahead with QT because we're focused on inflation. So that's all. The other part of, of the story, which we haven't quite touched on, is a story that we just broke on the terminal within the last half an hour, is that the fiscal implications of QT, of, of, of high rates and of 
selling bonds and what that means and the treasury is about to transfer 11 billion pounds to the boe to to stem the losses that have come from qe because of the higher interest rate environment and and the qt program so like at a time when you've got all these draws on on taxpayers money and all this kind of attends by the government is, is that real money it is real money because so it yeah. goes from the, the treasury has reaped billions of pounds from qe over the years george osborne in back in the, the yeah, when he was chancellor was. Yeah. said right we're going to take all the profits from qe they're just sitting at the boe we want them and we're going to use them to help pay down our debt so he took them he yeah. took and that's reached about 120 billion pounds over the time so just just to explain this process so as qe was happening yeah the bank was buying bonds and the prices of those bonds were going higher. Not, that is true, but what was mainly happening was the bank was buying the bonds and, and drawing the coupon income from all these bonds, yep, and yep. they were financed at bank rate, which at the time was 0.5%. So the interest and the difference between the coupon payments, which was around about 2%, and the right. uh, bank rate, which was 0.5, meant that the bank was just reaping this kind of ni- pretty nice annual... So they took the profit from it. Yeah. So the government took the profit from it. And now the bill comes to yeah. you, basically. And now if interest rates, say, hit 5%, then suddenly that means that the just the interest charge is about £40 billion pounds a year. On the Now we've got £850 billion of QE out there. That's a huge amount of money. And suddenly it's going to be charged at 5%. So that's a, it's really... Is that a reason to want to sell more quickly? It's certainly, I think, a reason why the bank are wary about having such a big balance sheet because you've effectively the UK, as you know, has one of the like its bond market has one of the longest durations in the world. It's yeah. it's a real kind of key asset of the UK. But what QE has done is effectively swap all this long dated debt for floating rate interest and rate notes. So you've got yeah. you've suddenly made it really short term, and then rates rates are going up at such yeah. a pace that yeah, you obviously want to try and get that down quite quickly. But the numbers are still huge, and it's. Like this, eleven billion pounds that is going to is going to be in transferred is the first of what could be quite a lot of, of transfers, and it could swallow up all that hundred twenty pound twenty hundred twenty billion loss at some point as well. So excellent, yeah. it sounds great, it sounds really good, all positive. Can nice I come to taxes for a second? Can I yeah, go to sure. taxes? Okay. <laughs> um, so adding on to fun things, um, so. When it comes to taxes, I was reading a lot of stories today about how banks, uh, if their corporation tax now rises to 25% and there's an 8% sur- surcharge on their profits, they're looking at like 33% tax. And other uh, industries seem to be worried about that as well, particularly energy. What kind of tax regime do we need to have that helps growth but also gives the government the money that it needs? Like, Where, where do you think the administration is going to come down on this? I don't know. It feels like at the moment the government is flagging every single possible revenue raiser putting out there and then seeing how much anger it causes. Joe Joe was talking about the triple lock earlier. That whole news cycle was about 24 hours and it could have been nipped in the bud yesterday if they said, no, the triple lock is going to stay. But they they didn't comment on it yesterday. It was on pretty much every front page today. Because Hunt doesn't have any options. Yeah. That's the problem. And then Tress makes a comment in, in, in Parliament at lunchtime. So like, that's one kind of trial balloon that's gone up, been told is unpalatable to everyone and has come down. So... Basically, I think they're just trialing all these things to see what they can actually get through the party. And also, if you try this, if you kind of trail all these really harsh things and you have to do a bit less, then I guess it's a bit of expectation management. But I mean, at the moment, yeah, things are so bleak. That that feels like that that feels like that requires a lot of thinking to do expectation <laughs> management. It feels like we're in crisis management at this point. Can I yeah. ask a really dumb question? Do we have to get the budget deficit to zero? Like, does that actually have to happen or or can there be a deficit? I mean, there can be. I think these are all the fiscal rules that the government has brought in, and I think one of them is getting debt falling as a percentage of of GDP. Um, 
they're self-imposed but the trouble is they've become like part of the uk financial landscape now and things like the, the OB, they're all linked to the obr forecast as well so i mean they could just uh, scratch them but i mean that would cause given, even more heartache yeah is what you're and also given what's happened in the last couple of weeks when we've tried economic and orthodoxy i think maybe they would be keen to avoid another experiment is the uk now a high tax state Yes. Is that is that the the new paradigm we are now in? We we cutting taxes has now been shown to be so politically toxic. Like timing execution were were major problems here, but we're now in a position where any government, regardless almost of whether or not it's the Labour or the Conservative Party, because I think they're both basically hemmed in by the same forces, are now in a position where they can't ta- cut taxes but they can't raise them massively either it now appears that we're basically in a in a in a new paradigm where where taxes are going to be relatively high and are going to remain relatively high for a quite a long period of time yeah and they are historically high at the moment as a result of of covid i think a couple of things obviously there was one tax cut that got through the the carnage of the budget which was national insurance which is scrapping an increase that's obviously that that's happened rishi sunak said he back in spring it feels years ago now but it was only the spring was saying he had plans to bring down the income tax and he said that if i can if i have the space to do it i will do it i think it was 2024 so and he got away with that yeah because he had a plan for it he said i'll do it if the circumstances allow it if if, and i think the market's got that i think obviously what happened last month was just this rush to do everything at once and and even trust says we've gone too far too fast like and that has then set back her cause of mm. uh, of cutting taxes by years and years because any government now who th- wants to cut taxes is going to remember the crossing's yeah. budget and know exactly what happened as a result so is there any credible growth plan like anywhere at this point not not really i mean there's still i think a lot of the supply side stuff from the fiscal statement still exists but all of that is that again like when you've got the 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 Tory party as they are and and all the kind of difficulties there some of these things like planning for example they talking about easing planning laws to build more houses suddenly you've got mutinous stories who will lose their seats because of planning disputes like we've seen that in in by-elections in the past like these are very hot button issues for for particular Tories so even getting little things like that through is is difficult yeah so that's the point isn't it we're, we're now at the point where we're tinkering like none of this is none of this is going to have a massive impact on econo- on the economic trajectory of the uk the uk has a productivity problem the supply side reforms were ultimately meant to deal with that it, it is now in a position where it's unable to do that it's going to rely on high taxation costs are going to remain relatively high for the government the labor party even if it if the labor party came in and we're talking about potentially kind of another change at the top of government here even if the labor party came in they couldn't I, unless you start to change immigration uh, unless you talk about maybe rejoining the single market there are very few sort of big picture levers that the uk can now pull yeah exactly and i think there is obviously no low-hanging fruit because that would have all been taken yeah before like i think and that was to an extent the argument that tress and Quartang were making when they came yeah. in they came in and said We've been stuck in this low-growth environment for a long time. Obviously, they couldn't talk about things like Brexit or immigration because of the sensitivities around that in their party. So this is like, well, what we've got left, it's these 
it's supply side stuff and it's tax cuts and mm. if if the program had got through and that and we had to have those tax cuts then we would have had this sugar rush of growth so it would have helped in the short term obviously you pay the price in the long term for inflation and, and yeah. public finances but even that i mean it was a growth plan but it was a growth plan for short-term growth and obviously the tories have got two years they were thinking if we've got two years left in power they needed to deliver Just, something yeah. quickly they haven't got the time so, to do something long term so are they going to have to go back to immigration and brexit like that's the only levers left yeah well i think i, I appreciate it's that almost politically impossible that's like for, political suicide but i mean yeah. what's the option I, well i mean i think at the moment if tress has got i think the last time it came out her approval rating is minus 70 and they're, they're only 10 percent of people who have a positive view of her if you start Oh my God, that's just talking so about I'm assuming Brexit. those 10% have been on holiday for a while. Yeah, all yeah, but those are people you would yeah. assume who things like immigration and Brexit are very important to. So yeah. if she's not going to do anything that risks those, like, those support. Excellent. We wow. find ourselves, yeah. Just wow. It, 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 is, it is an amazing position to find yourself in. I, what, I, what I find amazing, Alex, is that basically no government at this point, unless they start to pull some of those big levers, are going to be able to do very much. The, the joke in the UK is always that the Labour Party, when in power, runs out of money. It's going to inherit an economy which potentially has already run out of mm-hmm. uh, out of money. And, and you wonder, they can't really raise taxes much more, and the Conservatives can't lower taxes much more. So, so we are ba- the UK stuck. economy is now basically stuck. You're stuck with 10% plus inflation, high yep. taxes, no real plan for growth yep. um, in a global economy that is also slowing and dealing with high inflation and a central yep. bank that has to continue to be aggressive. That seems and, like a and, terrible recipe. And strikes. David, is this the 1970s? Oh, I don't know. We've, I mean, we spent so long with people saying this isn't the 1970s, this is the 1970s. I mean, it's something else, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. it's I think, drawing comparisons too much with that. Well, okay, I mean, we've got, we've got enough of our problems of our own, and we've got enough of a kind of. This is the particular problem that's yeah. right now, is I it, think. But it is stagflation, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely it's stagflation. No matter. What. Some I'm, we've asked the Bank of England that before, and they've they've come up with some weird definition of what it means. But I mean, obviously, if you've got high inflation and, and no growth, and what else is it? All right. David, nice. we thank you. We thank you for your time. You also stayed longer for us than we originally thought, and we appreciate it. I know it's super busy, and we're obviously going to be looking for any headline updates, uh, particularly on the political front and cabinet front there. Um, and then, oh, by the way, there's that stronger dollar guy. That doesn't help anybody. Well, it certainly doesn't help us. I think it Ooh. probably helps you. Um, I mean, at some it, point, it, but I don't know how much longer. Yeah. You should come over here on holiday. Like, spend some of that. Spend some of those dollars. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see about We'd the sales. Yeah. Uh, We'll talk currencies next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. We just spent half an hour talking about the dysfunction uh, in UK politics as well as inflation and growth in the Bank of England. So let's turn to that other thorn in everyone's side, and that's going to be the FX market. So you're looking at uh, the dollar higher today. It's a pretty solid playbook here in the U.S. Stocks can't figure out where to go. Yields higher, dollar higher as well. We're digesting some earnings here, like a Netflix. Tesla's out after the closing bell as well. Procter & Gamble citing the dollar uh, as a factor for them, um, and also price increases and inflation uh, being an issue as well. Um, at the same time, the overall index, though, can't seem to absorb any kind of positive earnings. Netflix might be up 15%, but NASDAQ 100 just can't really make up its mind. Let's just call it flat on the day. So 
let's get to a little bit of this. The dollars had enormous rally. Maybe we were seeing some stabilization. Then all of a sudden for today, we saw a rollover in the euro. The dollar yen's near 150. Uh, the cable rate may be okay. It's off the lows that we've seen, not near parity, but we're still at 112, 114. This is obviously a huge macroeconomic factor and also a big market factor in terms of positioning. So we wanted to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about this. Joining Guy and myself are Bloomberg's global macro strategist, Vincent Signorella, who is a trader for many decades. He traded the cable, got burned. You got burned, right, Vince? Uh, there were days, yeah. There were days. There were burning days for the cable rate. And also Bloomberg Intelligence Chief G10 FX strategist Audrey Child Freeman. Thank you both for joining us. Um, Vince, this move today, and I know it's short term and I appreciate that, but the res- resilience of this dollar, are we anywhere near a short term peak at this point? I think so. Um, I was looking at some technicals this morning. Uh, the technicals look like they're rolling over a little bit, uh, somewhere around the 1360 level, if I believe it. Uh, some consolidation, um, but there's a massive cross attached to the dollar, and that has uh, that has equities basically and yields, and so equities higher that yep. brings the dollar lower, and I think that's what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks. It could just be me, but I'm slightly struggling to hear Vince. So Audrey, do yes, you think Vince, we're near to a window? Do you think we're <laughs> do you think we are close to a peak in the dollar? I don't think so. I, I just feel that if you look if you look at the drivers that have uh, have taken us where we are today, and mainly the hawkishness in the Fed, and the outperformance of the U.S. economy, and the associated risk off that we've seen in the equity market, and associated tapers and flows that we've seen throughout the years, not to mention the geopolitical situation, all those drivers remain in place. And they are priced in, and I know the dollar is getting very expensive, and we're already we're up nearly 20% year-to-date and 26%, I think, from the low from last year. Uh, but I just feel that uh, the markets will not rush into abandoning defensive use, and that means holding on to the dollar. That, mm-hmm. you know, at, the same, at the same time, we will get pullbacks, and we've seen a pullback last week, but... To be honest with you, no one really understood what was this pullback about. about. We're all looking for reason and mm-hmm. uh, identifying this, this price action, but, but the drivers haven't changed. Right. Well, no, they, they, they haven't. And, and I guess I'm trying to understand, though, for some, even even last week when the dollar was a little softer, it wasn't softer against the yen. The dollar yen has been just on this relentless climb higher. Um, do we breach 150? Do we see any kind of massive intervention, Audrey? Well, I think we will most likely test and potentially break 150 again. Uh, I think we will most likely see unilateral intervention from the Bank of Japan. I mean, they always look at the pace of the moves and the volatility element of it, but but you know, we we will see them coming in again. But the question is, you know, what's the impact and and I think it'd be more of the same. I, it will contain this probably for a little while the pace uh, on the upside. But if the drivers that I've just described here on the on the dollar fronts remain the same, the market would try and continue to, to push it higher, uh, to push dollar yen higher. And eventually, I think what, what, what would be the massive game changer is any kind of adjustment even a slight adjustment in language from the BOJ on the on the yield targeting policy, 
Uh, and then you see um, you see the dollar yen uh, move quite significantly on the other side. But we just need the catalyst from the BOJ to, to come through first. And, and I think we'll have to wait uh, potentially until the new BOJ yeah. governor comes in next year, I believe. Yeah. Vince, is it possible to quantify how much money is using the yen as a funding currency at the moment and the kind of returns that people are making? By putting money yeah. into uh, like funding out of the yen into the dollar, I, got, I think I saw somewhere earlier that if you if you funded out of the the yen into the Brazilian real, you'd have made like fifty percent this mm-hmm. year. You crushed it. Yeah, I, I mean, the yen has been historically the great funding currency because um, historically yields in Japan are, are, are lower than they are are, are elsewhere. Um, the trick with that is the only way to really um, gain from that fully is you have to have an unhedged position. And in the past, that really caused the traders uh, a lot of pain. There was uh, uh, years back in the late 90s, so dollar yen go from 115 to 145 over the course of about a year, and then reverse course in about two weeks when um, when those trades were unwound, partly through intervention and then partly through mass stop losses that followed. Um, it, it's. I, I agree that we are going to test 150. I'm pretty sure we'll break 150. We may see some intervention, but if it's unilateral, as it was in the last time, um, you know, traders aren't just going to run away from that. If you mm-hmm. if you bought dollars the last time the Bank of Japan intervened, you're up about seven, eight big figures right now. Uh, I mean, there is a case for coordinated intervention when you look at a currency that's the weakest it's been in 30 years. Uh, the question is, the central banks really want to do it. Right. And I don't think they really want to at the moment. Do you think, Vince, that, well, I guess there's so many questions I have, but if we break the 150, and if we see some massive intervention that happens um, from Japan, what kind of positioning shakeout are we going to see? I just feel like if that really then puts um, the top on for the dollar, there's going to be so much adjustment that's going to have to happen. It, it would it would really have to be a massive intervention okay. because you'd have to start to you'd have to start to trip um, knockout options on the way down, which then gets the ball rolling and it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Once you get one, it triggers it tends to trigger the next one, et cetera, and that's where you get those really big moves down for the dollar. I think the dollar story um, is going to stay more or less what it is until we actually see some kind of movement from the Fed. I, I, I don't know that yep. we're going to be able to wait for the BOJ. It's really going to come from the Fed, where we're going to have to see them hit the pause button, and then you'll see a massive dollar sell-off, I think, and a, and a massive equity rally, because that's the cross-asset trade that's on the books right now, which yields, stocks, and the dollar. Audrey, let me just ask you a question kind of slightly related to the moment here in the UK. If Liz Truss goes as Prime Minister... How does the pound react? Uh, well, it depends who takes over. Um, and, and also, I think if she goes, the, uh, the, the implication is, is that it will be that we will have another general election. Uh, and certainly, and, and that, will, that will happen sooner than, than expected. And that, that's obviously not particularly supportive for Sterling. Um, I think, you know, by appointing Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor and and the measures he announced and the U-turn he announced on most of the mini budget, Mm -hmm. we we have a calmer environment. That's only one box fixed for Sterling. Vince, Audrey, 
Great stuff. Thank you both very much indeed. Uh, FX certainly front and centre right now. Um, up next, we're going to hear about inflation. Nestle continues to raise, raise prices. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson uh, is over in London. So we get earnings out from Europe as well. And one that we love to look at is Nestle. It's the biggest food company right in the world. It pushed through the biggest price increases in decades uh, this year. The volume of goods that were sold did ease by two-tenths of 1% in the third quarter, but they raised prices almost 10%. That was huge. And up until now, we've been able to absorb it. Consumers have been able to absorb those price increases. So Francine Lockwell Bloomberg sat down with Nestle's CEO, Mark Schneider, and he warned that shoppers would see even more increases if inflation remains this much of an issue through 2023. Look, this is a situation that uh, no one wished for. And uh, what we're trying to do here is protect um, our margins from some of the same pressures that every family feels. So we are seeing uh, that huge upward pressure coming from energy, some of the agricultural commodities, and, uh, and also transportation costs. And we're not even passing everything on because, as we saw with our half-year numbers, our gross margin has also been reducing over the last year and a half. So in a sense, we are struggling to catch up. And um, uh, understandably, these numbers get all the headline, but uh, they're only partially recovering some of the additional cost pressures that we're seeing. But Mark, we're seeing you know different government support in terms of different countries in Europe. So are there countries where you worry more about consumer backlash because of increasing prices, just because inflation is too high for them and their wages aren't following? So far, we've seen only very limited uh, trading down. Um, I think the big unknown, especially for Western Europe for the fall and winter, is energy insecurity and how hard that is going to be hitting uh, households' disposable income after energy costs. And that's the one where we are watching very closely and seeing how the fall and winter will play out. I mean, when do you find out whether consumers are switching to white labels? If, if you look at the trajectory, again, of consumer spending, of the cost of living crisis, of energy prices, of the winter months, where do you think or when do you think peak consumer angst is? Well, when it comes to white labels, do keep in mind um, we're not only offering premium brands. We have brands across a number of price points. And so when there's trading down, it doesn't mean we lose that consumer. Uh, we may be able to have a compelling offering uh, at a different price point. We're also promoting more in terms of value pack and uh, larger pack sizes. With the white label, you've seen a bit of a uh, recovery because uh, most of these uh, private label brands have been suffering a lot uh, during COVID times. Some of it supply chains weren't holding up as well as with the planted goods manufacturers. So some of the recovery there was already ongoing. We now need to watch over the winter exactly how the situation unfolds. So Mark, when you look at all the products that you offer, all the categories, which category do you think is more resilient to price hikes? I think in general, um, those large um, uh, key categories we have, like coffee and pet gear, tend to be very resilient. We know that from past crisis and also from other markets around the world. So clearly, uh, there's a lot of um, uh, allegiance here to these brands and to these products. And uh, I think that bodes well under the circumstances. 
I mean, to protect your margins, there are you know other things that you could do and increase. You know, for example, making some of the packaging smaller or the size is smaller, but the same price point. Has that been done? Will it be done? Well, a key part for us was to actually look internally and see where we can find efficiencies so that not all the pressures here that we saw on the gross margin arrive um, at the bottom line. And so a lot of internal cost savings have happened over the last year and a half. And then we also have undergone a very aggressive program, uh, which we call cut the tail to push the head. So this is low rotation SKUs being phased out in favor of high rotation, more successful core SKUs. That helps to improve supply chain efficiency. And the other thing is, uh, it really improves visibility of those core offerings. So it helps sales down the line. Mark Schneider, the CEO of Nestle, joining Francine a little bit earlier on for Veve, talking through the Nestle strategy. I think the implication of all of this is that food price inflation is going to remain relatively elevated. You've seen that certainly uh, in the inflation data out of the UK today. Food prices were a huge huge portion of that uh, and obviously that's fairly regressive as well it hits the most vulnerable in society the hardest tough times certainly here in the uk right now and doesn't look like they're going to get any easier anytime soon this is bloomberg this is the cable with guy johnson and alex Steele on bloomberg radio Good evening, you're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So earnings coming out. We had Netflix yesterday after the after the bell. You had a nice rally in the, in the market there. They had uh, subscriber growth really top to estimates. Um, and they have some new ideas in terms of uh, ad subscribers and different and ways of dealing with password sharing and stuff. So that's all going to help Netflix down the road. Now, after today, the closing bell here in the US, we get Tesla. That stock is pretty much flat on the day. And apparently, Elon Musk is going to be on the call. So that's going to be a long and a fun call. Ed Ludlow joins me now in the studio here in New York. Um, so what's up with Elon Musk being on the call? You know, every quarter since many quarters ago, he stated that he didn't feel the need to be on the calls anymore. He's shown up to be on the call. And, it, you know, especially the retail investors that follow him and the Tesla community on Twitter, they asked him and he tweeted, yes, I'll be on it. But I think that a big part of this quarter is the third quarter delivery numbers came below expectations. In the press release, Tesla said, aha, it was because of logistics. <laughs> Lots of EVs were in transit from A to B, mm -hmm. so we couldn't book them as delivered, and therefore we couldn't book revenue for the quarter. And Elon Musk reinforced this message on Twitter. So whether you're a street analyst, a naysayer about the Tesla demand story, or a mega fan, I think everyone wants Elon to kind of live up to that statement that this was just yeah. an issue of logistics, not waning demand. How's it going at Tesla? I, they've got logistical issues. All car companies have got logistical issues. What about the demand side of things? I th I th it all, by all accounts, it's strong. Elon Musk has maintained for a very long time that demand outweighs their ability to supply, right? And if that's to be believed and you, you go with that base case, it's also going well on the ramp up in production, right? Berlin and Austin are increasingly ramping production on a week-by-week -week basis. Even though the third quarter missed estimates, the estimates were very high and it was a record quarter of deliveries for the company. So it seems to be going well. They are still the market incumbent and they have all of these future products like the semi-truck, like the Cybertruck, mm -hmm. like the 4680 next-gen battery cells that are due to come out, all in the pipeline. Um, they've shown more nimbleness in the supply chain than other automakers have. And crucially, if you're a boring old Wall Street name, they've protected margins. And 
and that's what you want to see. That's what you want to hear. The other part, I think, what I bet everyone's going to be tuning into to see what he says about his acquisition of Twitter, and and in particular how much Tesla stock he still has to sell in order to finance Twitter, which also leads me to the debt financing part, and if that's a done deal or not. So the debt component is $12.5 billion uh, split across secured and unsecured bonds, a revolving credit line, um, and one other component, which I'll remember in a second. And the concern about that was that the world and the markets changed since when he first secured it in April. I don't think anyone on the, the street or in our Bloomberg reporting would suggest that the banks are not going to step up. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that they would definitely... The, the difficulty is they have to go to Wall Street and sell the debt to asset managers, but nobody thinks that the, the banks won't honor that commitment. We haven't heard anything from the equity financing partners. Mm. So as far as we know, Elon's on the hook for either all of the rest of the financing or those people will go through with it. But either way, there's a key man risk element. Elon's taking on another thing in Twitter alongside SpaceX and Tesla. Is he focused? People will ask him about that. They, they always do about succession. But also, is he going to sell Tesla stock? And the market is bracing for this to happen. Can I ask you a couple of questions about Netflix? Oh, please. Let's talk a, li- let's talk a little bit about advertising revenue. We're going to go to an ad model in November. Yes. What is it? Six ninety nine. You're going to be you're going to be paying up to watch to watch Netflix, but you'll be watching some ads. How much money could Netflix make from advertising? So, so here's the thing: the reason the street likes seven dollars is it's competitively priced against other ad supported models. Netflix are basically sticking to this story that the ads are going to be consumer friendly. It's not going to be the 15 minutes of ads you get on linear television. At the same time, they're also going to go after those advertisers that are advertising on linear television. The reason the street likes it is that they feel that they can grow the ad supported tier of subscription base of subscribers big enough that they make more revenue yeah. than they lose on those that cancel the higher end 1999 subscription. It's an inflection point, but I think analysts see a story where net net they come out with revenue growth, which is important because things have derailed this year. Do we have to value Netflix then as like an ad company? It's a really interesting question because as we know from everyone from Google and YouTube through to Meta and the pain that we've seen in Twitter before the acquisition, there's nervousness about global ad market, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, again, the street is sanguine and, and happy because they, they see the ad uh, pricing having two effects. Growing the overall subscriber base, which is good. Everyone is obsessed with the subscriber number, bottom line. But they do think that it's going to be a, a lever to grow the top line. Does this fit the, the, the advertising story the reduction in price also fits it seems with the idea that they're going to push back on password sharing so presumably the strategy here is you push back on password sharing but actually the people that were sharing passwords have now got a lower cost option to go to therefore we probably won't lose them in their entirety i'm assuming that these are part and parcel of the same strategy yeah password sharing has long been discussed as an issue as being money left on the table totally right you know it's a household that you're not billing that's again why you point to the $7 price point. There's a global problem, which you know I just can't resist the urge to talk about, which is the stronger dollar. Remember, we, we sit here thinking about Netflix in the context of the US, very strong in Asia, local language content in Korea, Latin American markets. Stronger dollar has been a real problem in this current period, the fourth quarter. I think they said that revenue will take a hit of a billion dollars. But what was interesting and the street responded to, they can be flexible on pricing mm-hmm. when you have this range of offers. 
a high-end 1999, a lower-end, and then an ad-based model. If the market is feeling pain because of the dollar in Latin America, let's change the pricing. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Uh, you definitely have more flexibility on that. I was telling Guy on the commercial break before that um, my daughter had no idea what an ad was because we, right. don't, we don't have TV. We just have streaming. And when uh, Amazon Prime put uh, ads there, she was like, what is this? Can I buy this toy like from my <laughs> yeah. TV? No, <laughs> so honey. the ads are working. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, all right, Ed, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to your coverage uh, over the next 24 hours on Tesla uh, as well as any follow-up on tech. Okay, that does it for us. You got UK political dysfunction, you got the stronger dollar, you got some earnings trickling out. That kind of covers it, guy, don't you think? Uh, yeah. It's. I was really hoping that we were going to have a few kind of sort of lower volatility days. How's that going? Not so well. Not so well. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>